The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. Today, I'm going to be talking with my guest, David Mercatz, about one of the scarier things that can ever happen to a person or a family, which is for someone to be arrested. Uh, David is the author of a book, Wrongly Charged, A Look at the Legal System. Uh, Before he became an author of this book, he was a locksmith and he's also a stockbroker. You can find him online at www.wronglycharged.com. I haven't talked with David before, so I don't know what kind of a wild ride we might be in for today. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so I understand that you have quite a story to tell. Let's start here. True or false? If you haven't done anything wrong, you have nothing to fear. That's false. Tell me more. Well, because you can be arrested, even being pulled over for a traffic stop, where you have a similar name to somebody that has a warrant out for their arrest, and uh, you get taken in and arrested and, you know, have to go through the whole system. What does going through the whole system mean? Well, when, you, when you're arrested, uh, a lot of people watch like Law and Order and shows like that, and they believe that you're allowed to make a phone call. But when you're arrested, you're taken to the police station, you're interrogated, depending on what you're arrested for. And then you're brought down to the main jail, wherever city you're in. And you can sit there for about eight hours before they actually call your name to read you what the charges are. And only at that point... Are you allowed to make that one phone call to either a bail bondsman or a family member to let them know that you were arrested? But all that other time that you're sitting there, you're in a jail cell where nobody knows where you are. If you were in an accident or anything like that, you're not put into the, even the system if you were to call the police station and ask. You, nobody knows where you are, so it's quite uncomfortable and scary. Yeah, it sounds really scary. So let's hear your story. What happened to you? Okay. Well, I was a locksmith for 35 years. I moved down to South Florida in the 80s, and there's no licensing regulations here of any kind in South Florida. So anybody can come down here and be a locksmith. And what happened was, you know, later on in the year 2000, people stopped using the yellow pages and it just became a very competitive business because anybody could be a locksmith. They didn't have to pass a test or anything. So we uh, put some websites up and uh, we registered them legally, four or five different names to try to catch some more business. And some of the websites we put up 
happened to have similar names of other companies, but they were legally registered. Now, our websites did not look anything like the other company's website, and they even had a disclaimer on there saying, we weren't the other company, you can click here to be redirected. But what happened was one of the companies we did it to in a town of Palm Beach, and this is five years later, he happened to be friends with a detective in the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, and they gave us a call in February of 2013 and said we need one of our locks rekeyed. So I sent up one of our independent contractors that works in the area. He knocked on the door. The gentleman opened up the door and said, this is the lock I need rekeyed. Okay, so he took the lock off, took it to his truck, changed the cylinder so the old keys wouldn't fit anymore. When he got done, he reinstalled it. He gave the person the bill. They tried the keys. Everything was fine. And as he was walking to his truck, they knocked him to the ground and said, you're under the arrest for burglary of an occupied dwelling, grand theft, and impersonation. So that's how my story began. That's pretty bizarre. Did they think that this person had stolen something from somebody else? Or is oh, this absolutely pure? not. This was what, what was called a sting. And basically what it was, in a normal circumstance, if a company comes out with a product or a service and someone imitates it or it comes out you know, similar, they go to court and they file a lawsuit. But uh, they didn't do that. They decided, uh, because they had a friend in the police department, to try to teach everybody a lesson. And it's much more scary to get a criminal charge against you and be arrested and pay thousands of dollars in legal fees than it is to file the proper way a lawsuit. And it didn't actually end there. The story gets more interesting. I'm listening. like to hear more. Yes. Okay. Now, two or three days later... One of our other independent contractors who had also done work in the same city received a phone call from the same detective, and he said, I'd like you to come in for an interview. We're conducting an investigation. And I had told him that, you know, unfortunately, the police are allowed to lie in, in the course of an investigation, and if he wants to do an interview, I would do it over the phone. But he felt he did nothing wrong, so he went up did his interview, and when he got done with the interview, they placed him in handcuffs and charged him with the same three charges, and he was arrested. What were the three charges again? Burglary of an occupied dwelling, grand theft, and impersonation. Wow, and and what dwelling had these gentlemen allegedly stolen things from? They didn't steal anything. You see, the problem what, what, is... What was the claim? The, the burglary of an occupied dwelling. Florida's laws are very vague, and they can be twisted around. Their whole idea of the burglary is, is Mrs. Smith called the other company, thinking they called the other company, and she wouldn't have opened up the door to let you in if she thought you were from the other company. And that's how they created the burglary charge, saying that we came there you know, under false pretenses. But the funny part of it was... And this is where it gets even more interesting. On the three charges that they filed, when the state formally files them 30 days later after they review the case, they actually dropped the impersonation charge on both defendants. Okay. So now they were just charged with burglary of an occupied dwelling and grand theft. So I was amazed that they dropped the impersonation charge because that's what I thought the whole thing was about. 
Yeah, that is strange. So uh, probably listeners are wondering, what is grand theft? Is, you know, there must be something that's just petty theft. What makes it grand? Grand theft is over $500, or depending on certain areas, it's $1,000. Now, these charges were drummed up. They were put on to try to teach us a lesson instead of handling it in a proper way because at best it was a trademark violation where an, a, one company is using a name similar to another, which goes on every day. I mean, there's not a day I don't turn on the news and uh, one of the phone companies come out with a chip for a phone and the other company copied it and they're suing them. There's no, there's no police involved. I mean, mm-hmm. it might not be a nice thing to do, but it happens very often in business and it's not a, a criminal offense. If anything, right, it's, it's a, a civil matter. Right. Okay. And, so uh, what happened, it went on further, the story. Naturally, they were looking for the person that put up the websites. And months went by, and I didn't hear a thing about it. So I retained an attorney just to have him on board, and I had the attorney call up the detective in June of 2013 to see, you know, what was going on. And he invited me to come in for an interview, which, of course, I declined. But in August of 2013, my attorney received a phone call from the detective, and he said, there's a bench warrant for my arrest. And he wouldn't tell him what the charges were. Now, the interesting thing was... Is that even legal? Well, he could have just executed the warrant and come to my house and arrested me. So it was kind of nice of him that he actually called the attorney and told him there's a warrant and he wanted me to turn myself in. Ah, okay. So what I did was, knowing have a vast experience with the law, I called up a good friend of mine, good, always good to have a good bail bondsman, and I called him up and he was actually, because of the electronic age, actually able to get into the court records and see what the charges were. And he told me that the charges would be money laundering, organized scheme to defraud, and impersonation, and there's going to be a bond set at $19,500. So he actually made it easy for me because what happened was I went and met with the bail bondsman, filled out all the paperwork, and had everything in order. And then the next morning, uh, I surrendered myself not to the detective. I surrendered myself to the Palm Beach County main jail and let them know that there was a warrant. And uh, they actually were, you know, I'll never forget when I went there, they looked at me and they couldn't believe there was a warrant. I just didn't look like I fit the profile. (laughs) And uh, knowing how to handle these things and how to, you know, take care of these paperwork things is the difference between 24 to 48 hours behind bars or getting there at 9.30 in the morning and being home at 3.30 in the afternoon. So So how on earth did you know that it's a good idea to call a bail bondsman before you even turn yourself in to be arrested? Because, you see, the thing was that they wouldn't tell me what the charges were. And knowing not what the charges were, I wanted to know uh, how serious they were and what the bond would be. And by doing that, bail bondsmen have uh, amazing access to the uh, jail system. You can prepare for these things knowing how to work the system and get yourself bonded out before you even, you know, go through seeing a court magistrate and everything like that. So it's an experience that I'll never forget. 
Boy, that's uh, really valuable information for anybody who expects to be arrested soon. Well, even if you don't get arrested, you never know. You can get pulled over and, you know, like I, when I wrote this book, I didn't write it just about my story. I have pages in there and a lot of things to help people and teach them. I have a whole chapter in there on how to get out of jail without seeing a judge on a nonviolent offense, not a murder charge, of course, or something like that, but a minor white-collar crime or a traffic stop if you happen to have a suspended license and get arrested instead of spending 48 hours behind bars and waiting to see a judge. I teach people how easy it is to get processed out in six to eight hours knowing how to do it. Ah, okay. Well, that sounds really useful. So let's get back to your story. What happened next? So, uh, of course, on my case also, they they did drop the impersonation charge. There was, uh, and, it, and then, you know, it's a waiting period. The states come back with offers and, you know, and uh, the interesting part of it was I knew that the case would, if it went to trial, they would never get a conviction because you got two gentlemen that went there. They let them in. They did a job. They paid for the job. And you're not going to convince a jury that they broke into the place and stole anything or did anything, because juries are very smart people, and they would have read into this was nothing but two locksmiths fighting over a name, and uh, it would have went away. And ultimately, against the two people, of course, the cases were dismissed. But see, the problem is, is that these people's reputation gets ruined. You're arrested, you're on, it was on television, it was like the crime of the century, and uh, you're, you're all over the internet, you, you're a scam artist, you're this, you're that, and when you go for a job, when your name is, comes up, it says arrested, burglary of an occupied dwelling, grand theft, case dismissed. A lot of people still look bad at you, even though the case was dismissed. Mm, I see. What, can, what could people do about that? Can they get that well, erased from their records? That's, yes, that's another chapter I have. It's called Sealing and Expunging. Now, not every state does offer that, but a lot of states do, and Florida is one of them. And for a small fee, you can petition to have it sealed or expunged. Now, a dismissed case is always eligible. As long, you can only do it one time, but a dismissed case is always eligible. They can't fight you on that because they dismiss the charges. And the other type of case that's available to do that to, if the adjudication was withheld, the conviction was withheld, which is a very common thing on a, on a white-collar crime, if it's a first offense, uh, in an offer they'll give you what's called an adjudication withheld and maybe a year's probation, and then you can have it sealed or expunged from your record. So if somebody you know, looks you up, it won't show up anymore. I see. Okay, so... You didn't spend more than a few hours in the jail. How about the two folks who were um, independent contractors providing services and getting arrested where they had changed lock? Well, they they weren't so lucky. Unfortunately... The burglary, first of all, they don't know how to, they didn't, weren't aware uh, on the bail bondsman system and how it works, but even if they were, on the charge of burglary of an occupied dwelling is considered a violent crime. You broke into a home with somebody in there. So that requires a magistrate court appearance. And unfortunately, a lot of times, that's such a serious offense, you can't even bond out. You have to sit there you know, waiting for a trial. So a police officer can really, you know, tie you up for 90 days in jail. 
and you can sit there until they decide either dismiss it or you go to trial. But luckily for these two gentlemen, in 24 hours, the judge set a reasonable bond, and they were able to bond out of jail. Okay. Okay. I'm not sure where to go next, because somehow along the way, I believe that you did also come across other people's stories. And if if all three of of you did so little time... It's also interesting, too. You see, in my case, they had spent on this case uh, eight months' investigation with forensic experts. They hired forensic experts like it was a, a murder case to, because we had a bunch of phone lines and they didn't know where they were going. They spent a fortune. It was the front page of the paper. So um, they, they refused to drop the charges in my case. So now here's what people run into, and this happens every day. Why do people plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit? It's because of fear and money. Well, the fear factor is in the in the event I was found guilty of money laundering and organized scheme to defraud, which it's very easy to convict on that, uh, I would be facing 15 to 20 years in state prison. And a jury uh, on an organized scheme to defraud, they don't have to prove to a jury that anybody was injured in any way. The customers could have gotten good locks, they could have been happy with the service, but under Florida law, organized scheme to defraud means in some way you misrepresented yourself. So I thought to myself, on a jury, they might think, well, we did misrepresent ourselves. We used a similar name and we confused the customer. So I was frightened, that's the fear factor. And the other mm-hmm. sad part is, is that if you're convicted of the organized scheme to defraud charge, the money laundering statute in Florida says that if you're guilty of any, you made money off an illegal activity. So if you're guilty of the organized scheme to defraud, you made money off an illegal activity, you're automatically a money launderer, believe it or not. So the two felonies together, chances are if I elected my constitutional right for a trial, I would have been facing between 15 and 20 years in state prison. So, and on top of that, to try the case is an additional $35,000 on top of the 60000 I already had spent. That's where okay. the money factor comes in. We are going to take a break now, and when we come back, I'm going to find out where that $60,000 went. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively, In a private, confidential setting, we help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Colin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. 
This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radioshow at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Today on Family Matters, David Murkatz, author of Wrongly Charged, A Look at the Legal System, is describing some of what he has experienced and some of what he has learned from other people's stories about the way the legal system really works in the United States in criminal cases. Even if the charges are pretty much trumped up, So just before break, you were saying that you had spent $60,000 on your own defense. I forget, in what period of time and why so much money? And tell us about that. Because my case received front page press, you know, uh, the attorneys uh, were looking for big money. You know, they figured, uh, you know, they didn't know where it was going to go. So they take a retainer and the retainer was uh, about close to $60,000. Now, that retainer, when you give a retainer, most attorneys will tell you that's just to cover up to a point if it doesn't go to trial. Now, if the case goes to trial, they charge you by the hour. And by the hour, they give you a a guesstimate. You know, it can go on a week. It can go on. So to try my case, they had said we need another $35,000. And remember, in a criminal case, unlike a civil case, you pay for everything, whether the jury comes back with a not guilty verdict or if the case is dismissed. So by filing these charges, even if they're false or whatever, the defendant is out all the money. Some people actually take mortgages on their house to clear their name, and they get a not guilty verdict, but they still are ruined. They have no money. They have mortgages and stuff like that. So what happened in my case, that's where the money factor came in. You know, another $35,000, and there was a possibility, after reading the law carefully, that they could come back with a guilty verdict. You know, juries are human, and if they can convince them we did something wrong, which I believed, and three attorneys also believed I didn't, uh, criminally anyway, uh, you know, that's why when they made me a sweet offer toward the end, they said, look, we want this case to be over with. If you plead guilty to petty theft, misdemeanor, will give you an adjudication withheld. You'll do a little probation, and then you can have it sealed or expunged after the probationary period. I said, you know what? Even though I didn't 
steal anything from anybody, rather than spend $35,000 that's non-refundable, I forced myself to accept the plea. And it was a big thing because I really didn't want to get up in front of a judge and say I was guilty of, you know, you have to swear to the judge you're pleading guilty <sighs> to something you know you didn't do just so that you can satisfy everybody and, you know, go on with your life. So that's what I wound up doing. And I explained that to people. Now, there were cases where people, I have a case here in South Florida where, unfortunately, the guy had a traffic accident. And there was a fatality. There was a couple of fatalities. And it was a, you know, legitimate accident. He stopped. He rendered aid. And, you know, the person, a couple of people died. And they charged him with vehicular homicide. And uh, they offered him a plea deal of five years in state prison. And he did not want to go to jail. He felt it was an accident. He wasn't drunk. He wasn't doing anything that was, he was going over the speed limit, but it wasn't, uh, you know, that he left the scene of the crime or anything and he didn't take the plea. Well, unfortunately, instead of getting five years, he was found guilty. They gave him the maximum penalty and he was a first time offender. He's still in jail. He has one more year, 15 years in state prison he got for the accident because he exercised his constitutional right for a trial. And that's why people get scared. They take the pleas because the judges will never give you that the sentence that was offered in a plea deal. They want you to take those pleas and plead guilty or they're going to give you the maximum penalty, which is not fair. What happens to the people who don't have any way to come up with $60,000 for the first segment of getting some lawyers to work on your behalf? What if well, you don't have $2,000? You cannot afford an attorney. But, you know, and, and I got to be honest with you, one of the uh, defendants in my case actually did run out of money and did continue in the middle of the case with legal aid, and he still wound up with uh, a dismissal. But, you know, it's a scary thing to face uh, 10 or 15 years in prison and not have, you know, a paid attorney because, you know, legal aid is legal aid. You know, they're going to try, they usually try to bargain and work a deal. They're not going to, you know, they usually don't try cases. They do, but, I mean, uh, you know, obviously legal aid is not having your own attorney. And it's scary. And that's why the rich people can afford a good attorney. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, and you see it every day, a rich person can get away with a murder case and a poor person goes to jail because they just don't have the funds to, to afford this, you know, mm-hmm. when you're prosecuted. And it's a scary mm-hmm. thought. Mm-hmm. And I have scary. many other stories that similar things like that that I wrote about. Uh, I had a friend in New, in New York that uh, was coming away from uh, a movie theater at 11 o'clock at night and all of a sudden, a police officer stopped, and he heard from the car, that's the guy. And that was the worst nightmare of his entire life. The girl accused him of raping her and kidnapping her. And this was back in the uh, 70s where we didn't have the DNA testing. So he was taken to jail and held on a no-bond hold. Nobody knew where he was for three days serious charges, rape and kidnapping. And uh, it took him $250,000. He lost his home. In six or seven months later, they actually caught the real guy. But he lost his marriage. He lost his home. He lost everything. And on his record now, it says, uh, armed kidnapping and rape case dismissed. And, you know, the guy to this day still can't get a job. 
And there's so many other cases, even here in South Florida. We had a case here just, oh, it must have been three weeks ago. This uh, African-American had put his picture on Facebook, and a woman that got raped recognized that picture, and he was hauled off and arrested on kidnapping and rape charges. Now, it's interesting because 42 days later, they decided to do a DNA test. There was no rush to do it. They let him lay in jail for 42 days and $7,500 in legal fees. Oh, we're sorry. We got the wrong guy. And this is what I talk about. If the criminal justice system was changed to where the criminal defendant was reimbursed if a case was dismissed or if they were found not guilty, this guy wouldn't have been in jail for 42 days. They would have done that DNA test the first day, found out it wasn't him. He would have been released, and that would have been the end. But there's no rush because you're the one that has to pay for all of this. So it's a very, very scary thought to be arrested and go through this kind of, uh, you know, anxiety and money. In that, in that particular case, would it have been possible for the um, African-American who's arrested for rape, would it have been possible for his attorney to order the DNA test? Yeah, but unfortunately, and you know, this is the sad part, the minorities mostly don't have money for an attorney. So he had to use legal aid till he got the attorney, until, you know, the legal aid represented him, and all this happened, it took 42 days. And he paid $7,500 in legal fees, and the judge apologized to him. We're sorry. But in the meantime, now here's a guy that he's ruined because unless he reads my book or knows somebody to help him, on his case, if you look him up on the Internet, Timothy, whatever his name was, I forget his last name, it says, rape and kidnapping, case dismissed. I mean, can you imagine going for a job interview and they, today they run criminal background checks? It's not likely they're going to want to hire him even though the case was dismissed. Technically, they can't use it against them. A government agency would have to hire him because the case was dismissed. But a private person would feel funny having him work in a child care place or uh, a place around women, you know, if they saw that on his record because people, you know, presume you're guilty because that was on your record. They don't know why the case was dismissed. It could have been lack of evidence or, you know, so he needs to get that taken off his record. And the sad part of it is, when a case is dismissed, they should take it off automatically. But you have to use your one time that you can seal or expunge. You have to pay to have that done, and I don't think that's fair either. That's another issue where the law needs to be changed. You have to pay to have it sealed or expunged. Well, yeah, well, the, uh, you, in, in the state of Florida, you have to file for a certificate of eligibility, which is $75, which can take up to three to six months till they give you that. Then you first have to go for a hearing in front of a judge, which usually requires an attorney to file a motion. So that can cost you another five or $600. And, you know, naturally it'll be granted. It may take eight months till you get it done, and sometimes a year the way... Uh, you know, South Florida works. But, I mean, here's a guy that did nothing wrong, and he's out $7,500, 42 days in jail, and his rep is all over the Internet. His name is smeared all over the Internet. And, you know, his reputation is ruined because of a, a, a mistake. And these mistakes would be less likely, I'm sure, if the criminal justice system worked the same as the civil cases. In a civil case, if you sue somebody and you win, 
court costs and attorney's fees can be asked for and awarded. But in a criminal case, that's not the case. You're out the money, win or lose. And it's sad because here, like in our cases, they knew they didn't have a case against us. This was a case to teach us a lesson. And they did. They cost, between the three of us, $100,000 in legal fees. And this was something that should never have been brought into court. It should have been a, a cease and desist letter. Should have went out and say, hey, your name is too similar to the other competitor's name, and you need to stop using it, otherwise you're going to get sued, and we would have stopped using it. I mean, the whole thing was the state of Florida legally registered, gave us certificates for the five names. They could have said, look, this name is too close, and we're denying your registration. But they took the $60, and we used the name for five years without a problem. So, you know, it, mm. it all boils down to the system, the criminal justice system needs a little bit work done to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can easily imagine uh, problems with your solution, but I think I'm not going to go there. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm particularly concerned about what happens to poor people in these situations because the majority, my impression is that the majority of people who are arrested are people who don't have a lot of money. Those are, that's the, the people who are most likely... Is- you can get arrested for something you didn't do. Another case, I had a friend, you know, we're in the electronic age now where everything is on a computer, but in the 80s, before everything was so computerized, uh, a good friend of mine was pulled over for a traffic stop. He was speeding, there was no question he was speeding, and he got a speeding ticket. And he was court ordered to go for um, the driving school, the three-hour class. And if he did that, the points would not be assessed. And, oh, he said, great, he did that. And back then, before the electronic age, they gave you a certificate. And you sent it into, or you brought it into the motor vehicle, and they would enter it into the system, and everything was fine. Well, in his case, he brought it in, and the clerk lost it and forgot to put the certificate in that he completed the driving school. Now, because it was court-ordered and it wasn't voluntary, the court saw it as a violation. So in other words, he didn't, as far as they were concerned, he violated a court order. He paid his fine in his court course, but he didn't complete the driving school. So now he, his license was suspended for violation of the order, and he's driving. He doesn't know. You know, back then we didn't have computers, letters didn't go out to people, and he was driving, and he got pulled over for either, I forget what it was, past the red light or something, and all of a sudden his car is surrounded, they put him in handcuffs, they impound his car, he doesn't even know what he's being arrested for, they wouldn't tell him, they said there's a warrant for your arrest, and you're being taken into custody, his car got impounded, and the first funny thing is, the first call he made is to his good friend Dave, and... uh, I found out what the problem was, and the bond was only $100 because it was a misdemeanor, but he didn't know what to do. You know, most people don't know how the system works and what, what you go through when you get arrested. So I went down to the, uh, G- the local jail, and I posted $100 quickly for him, and he was able to get out in six hours because I did it quickly before they took him to magistrate court. But, I mean, the poor guy didn't do anything wrong. Now, eventually, they realized he took the, you know, the class six months into later and they he got an apology but here he's you know he could have spent two or three days in jail if he didn't know how to 
properly bond out because most people don't know what's involved when you get arrested, how you can get out, and uh, it's a scary, scary process. There's a, there's a lot of horror stories out there with that. Hmm. Yeah, I I thought it somehow I thought it was widely known. I thought we've watched enough shows with police and detectives and so forth on TV. Uh, I thought everybody knew that you could get a bail bondsman to uh, get you out. <laughs> Yeah, I guess not. You have I guess I'm wrong see, the about problem that. Problem is, is that in most states they have a set bond, and if you don't call the bail bondsman and get something arranged within the first hour after the charges are read, it you will be taken in, on a bus and shipped down to the uh, you know the processing, and you have to stay overnight, and then you have to wait to see a judge. And sometimes judges will release you with no bond on a small charge because they don't have to go by the set bond. And in other instances, they can hire the, make the bond a lot higher or even hold you without bond because some people may have a prior uh, a record from a few years ago. They may have done something wrong. And if the judge sees that, they can take a $500 bond and make it $10,000. So it's very important to bond out before you see the magistrate judge if they do set a bond, which, is, which they normally do in minor cases. And a lot of people are not aware of that. The time is of the essence. You only have an hour from the time you're arrested and processed, an hour to an hour and a half to the time before you're shipped onto the bus and taken to the uh, you know, processing to wait for magistrate court. And if it's after 8 or 9 o'clock at night, you're in for the night. You can't get out. So okay, you you said know, that's you a only... very important section that I have outlined how to, you know, how to do that and teach people how to do that, how to get out. And then, you of said, course, pause, pause, pause. You said you, you have only an hour to find a bail bondsman and make arrangements. But earlier I thought you said that people might not even know that you've been arrested. Like you might not know what you're charged with. You might not find out until six hours later what all this is about. Well, what I, I, what I meant to say is that after the charges are read to you, in other words, ah. after you're brought down to the main jail, you sit there for a few hours. Then they call your name and they say, so-and-so, these are your charges, your bond, your set bond is, let's say, $1,000. Now you're allowed that one phone call, and it better not get a busy soon because you're not going to get a second chance. Bail bondsmen always answer their phone. Family members may not. So if you call the bail bondsman, he actually, on minor charges and small bonds, can actually electronically bond you out right from his office. Okay, he doesn't even have to come down to the jail today. And then he'll meet you to fill out the paperwork at the jail. So he can do this real quick and get you bonded out if it's a small charge like a traffic violation or a shoplifting charge or something that's nonviolent. And then they'll wait for you when you come out and they'll have you fill out the paperwork and give them their commit, you know, their 10% or a credit card. So you can make this into a six or seven hour ordeal as opposed to spending 24 to 36 hours in jail. Well, six or seven hours is definitely better than 24 to 36. It's, We're going to take me, another break now. It, especially for a female that's arrested, it's a lot worse than it is for a male because, uh, as you might imagine, the sanitary conditions of the uh, inside the uh, jail cell in the bathroom with no toilet seats or anything might not be so accommodating for a female as it is for a male. So, you know, the place is filthy. It's dirty, it stinks in there, it's very uncomfortable, and I feel bad for any female that has to go through that worse than a male. It sounds pretty awful. 
We are going to go to break now. I'll be back with David Mercatz in a couple of minutes. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, Please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin, talking today with David Mercatz, author of Wrongly Charged, A Look at the Legal System. And you can find him online at wronglycharged.com. We've been talking a lot about the enormous financial damage that comes from being arrested or can come from being arrested and, and charged with a serious crime, even if you're innocent can be huge financial damage. I'm wondering about uh, also what happens emotionally. And I'm wondering about families. You know, if if my husband were arrested, you know, how would that affect me? How would that affect our kids? If I were arrested, you know, how would that affect my spouse and my kids? Or, you know, if I'm a single mom, what happens to my kids when I get arrested? Can you speak to any of those questions? Well, I'll give you first in my case. Now, when you first get arrested, 
you know, it's a very scary thing. Till you, till you, you hear the door open that you're being released. But that's just the beginning of it. I mean, whatever charges they charge you with, they can upfile them, downfile them, or dismiss them. That's 45 days later. Now, during that 45 days, you don't sleep because, you know, it's a scary thought. You know, here you have to come up. You have, first thing you have to do is get an attorney. And it's all about money. In my case, I had good credit. I mean, I was able to borrow a lot of money, which unfortunately I'm still paying back. And, uh, you know, and of course you have a spouse and you have a kid. And, you know, my wife took a toll on. I mean, she was, you know, because I was, my behavior became erratic because I was always worried. I didn't know what the next day was going to be. You know, it took a year. Case, criminal cases tend to take anywhere from eight months to 14 months unless they're major ones. So for that time, you're up in the air. What's going to be? Am I going to go to jail? What if you're going to go to jail? You have to prepare for that. Uh, the thought of, you know, spending time in jail for something, especially when you didn't do it, even if you did it, but I mean, if, especially when you didn't do something wrong, it took a toll on my marriage. I wound up getting divorced over it because the money aspect of it, uh, you know, borrowing the money, uh, and uh, I was always depressed every day because I didn't know what tomorrow was going to be until that plea offer came, or in the other guys' cases, until the uh, you know the cases were dismissed eight months, nine months later. It's scary. Now, in my case, it was a white collar crime, so you know my neighbors looked at me funny when they saw the front page of the newspaper, which read "Police Beware" website scheme on the front page with my picture like I was a murderer. But fortunately for me, I live in a nice community and people knew what it was and they said, oh, I don't understand why the police were involved. But, you know, unfortunately, the media ruins you. Now, what about my poor friend in New York? Now, that's scary. He got arrested for armed kidnapping and rape. Now, when his wife went to the magistrate hearing to try to bond him out, which took almost two months to do because, you know, it was a violent crime, this woman testified that that's the man. He did this to me and he did that to me. This woman believed. She was starting to believe that maybe oh her gosh. husband didn't do that, you know, that he did it. You know, she has this mm-hmm. woman pointing him out and describing the whole thing and wound up, even when it was all said and done and the case was dismissed, uh, she divorced him because in the back of her mind, it, it was like maybe he did it. You know, so his marriage was lost. He became an alcoholic, and he can he couldn't get a job because, unfortunately, in the state of New York, is a non-expungement state. So, on his record, whenever he goes for a job, armed kidnapping and aggravated rape is on his case, on his criminal record, and he can't get that sealed or expunged in New York. So wow. it really, really can take a toll on a marriage or on, you know, in his case, I mean, my case was nothing compared to his. He was in jail for two months, and they ran out of money. They, had a, they lost their house in foreclosure because they couldn't make the payments anymore. And uh, it was, it's, it's a very, very big toll on the spouse, on the kids, and, you know, it's a very scary thought. And all because of a mistaken identity or, you know, a charge trumped up against you to get even with you for something you did. So, you know, people have to realize uh, when you're arrested, it's the getting out of jail is, the, is, is usually, if it's a minor thing, easy, but the mental anguish that you go through for the 6 to 12 months till this thing can get resolved in most cases, it's scary. The thought of anybody going to jail, is, is a, it has to be a very scary thought to the average person. Yeah, 
Gotcha. Okay, we have a few minutes left, and I know that you wanted to get a chance to talk at least a little bit about people who are wrongly convicted and spend a lot of time in jail, and you wanted to get a chance to talk a little bit about what it's like being on probation. Okay. So why don't, why don't you take that where you want to? Okay, the wrongly convicted, I have a whole section in there that basically being wrongly charged is scary enough. But can you imagine, there are so many people, I didn't realize how many until I started writing the book, that actually have been in jail for 10 and 15 years, and thanks to the Innocence Project and the DNA and that people that actually help people that don't have any money, because these are people that really don't have a lot of money, uh, they do a DNA test, 15 years, and you know, getting these appeals take forever. But the, imagine spending 15 years in state prison and they get out and they say, I'm sorry, there's very few states that offer compensation. There's three or four people I have in my book. One actually died in Florida in jail, and they exonerated him a week after he died. And it's a scary, scary thought. Now, the other thing is, a lot of people, like myself, will take a plea for probation. Now, probation seems like it's very easy. It is if you follow the rules but it is so easy to get violated on a probation. When you're placed on probation, number one, you have to allow unwarranted searches. So that means a probation officer can come to your home, to your car, unannounced, and say, I want to, and it has happened to me too, and they want to search your home or your car. Well, if everything is clean, there's no problem, but if you even say no, you're a violation of probation. Now, when you violate a probation, it's a no-bond hold. That's the scary part. You cannot bond out of jail when you're on probation. So if you violate probation, even by just simply, if you're on probation like where I am in Broward County and you go into Palm Beach County without advising a probation officer or having permission and you get pulled over for a traffic stop, that's a violation of probation. It's a technical one. But if you're taken in on a violation of probation, you have to wait between 30 and 60 days to see a judge and they can sentence you to the entire amount of the, uh, what the you know, arrest would have been for. So being on probation, unless you're going to follow everything perfectly, and I mean perfectly, don't take a probation plea. It's a scary so thing if you make one mistake. What, what are ordinary conditions of probation? I mean, you have to stay in the county unless you let your probation well, officer in know? in cases, like, for example, in Florida, if you are sentenced in Palm Beach or Broward County, you know, when you're sentenced, you have to go visit a probation officer. Now, if you're going to, if you live in Broward County, you must stay in Broward County. Now, that doesn't mean you can't go out. You need to tell the probation officer that you're going to Palm Beach County for dinner or you're going here or there. You can have a rapport with the probation officer, but make sure they know where you go. If I go on a trip to the west coast of Florida and I'm on probation, I give her a copy of the where I'm going to be at all times so that, you know, if I get pulled over for a traffic stop and they run my driver's license, I live in Broward, what am I doing there? And if they call her up and she says, I wasn't aware, that's a violation of probation. So condition one is you can't go out of your county. Number two, you can't carry a weapon. You can't associate yourself with anybody that has an arrest, in other words, that's under arrest, criminal activities, 
there's a lot of things you you know that you have to be you, can't have, you can be randomly drug tested, which in my case doesn't matter. I don't do drugs, but some people do. If you get test positive for any substance that's not a prescription drug that your doctor gave you, that's a violation of probation. And they can come to your home at 11 o'clock at night and knock on your door and say, we want to do a drug test. If you say no, you're arrested. And if you say yes and you test positive, you're arrested. So taking a, a, a plea of probation requires being on your best behavior and not doing anything wrong. And that won't work at all if you happen to be a person who lives in a neighborhood where a whole lot of the people have felony records. Or right, even you just have to stay, you know, in other words, you if can't, you have If you can't associate with, other, with felons and right, you have to have associate, to you know, it's, it's not that hard. It's just that, you know, you have to realize being on probation, if a police officer pulls me over and says, I want to search your car, I have to say yes, where you can say no because they have to have a warrant. I have to say, go ahead and search it, and I would because I have nothing in there. But, uh, and that's why I, in my car I have a dash cam in my car, because this way if they tried anything, I have everything on record. Uh, mm-hmm. I always recommend a dash cam anyway, but, uh, because this way you're protected on a traffic stop if uh, anything goes wrong. But probation can be scary if, you, if you're not clean. If you do, you know, some people do drugs, they smoke an occasional marijuana, all these things will cause a violation of probation. I've been drug tested before. I've had them come to my home and search. No problem. I've not, but some people do have a problem. If you have a weapon in the house, a knife or a, you know, a, a gun or something like that, that'll you know, be a violation of probation. Doesn't everybody have knives in their houses? Yeah, well, they're not, you know, kitchen knives. I'm talking about kitchen like knives a hunting okay. knife or, okay. you know, a stun gun or anything that's, you know, that they feel they can find something. You have to be very, very careful when you okay. take a plea of probation. Okay, you know, we've now just, you know, j- just a couple like, minutes left. I'd like to hear a little more about the Innocence Project. The Innocence Project is a nonprofit organization which helps people, okay, that have been wrongly convicted of crimes and are sitting in jail. They do it through DNA testing, and they don't take every case. It's on a case-by-case because it's a nonprofit. And what, you know, they do for people is they look at the case, and if they think that it qualifies, they'll take on the case and they will help people try to prove their innocence and get them out of jail. They've done it for oh, hundreds of people here in uh, this area, in the South Florida area. It's, uh, but unfortunately, it's a long process. It can take three to five years and, you know, you have to sit there in prison. Okay, um, let's take it back to families with just a minute to go. When you're in jail or in prison, and those are two different things, do you get to see your kids? Do they get to see you? Once you're sentenced, not if you're, not if you're waiting trial. In other words, if you're sentenced to a year in jail, they can visit you. But while you're in a, you know, waiting a trial, it's much harder. Uh, or if you're just being held overnight, no. You know, every state is different, but it's, it's, more, it's easier once you're sentenced. Okay. So just getting arrested can do a lot of damage to family relationships, even if you're completely innocent. Correct. Okay. Well, we're wrapping up now. Are there any last thoughts that you want to get out or anything you want to repeat in the last 30 seconds of the show? 
Well, I would just like to let people know that my book is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and Books a Million. Ten percent of the profits of the book are being put aside to help people that are wrongly charged and wrongly convicted. The e-book is currently on sale for the month of June for 99 cents, and it's well worth every penny. It's a number one bestseller. Okay, and the name of the book is Wrongly Charged, A Look at the Legal System. Thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow. We'll be right back. 